The Amazon is burning. Australia's on fire. This week, we've got a veterinarian to discuss the animal welfare impacts and our responsibilities. This week on The Veterinary Viewfinder. Yeah. Welcome back to The Veterinary Viewfinder, the podcast that tackles the toughest topics in veterinary medicine. And this week, we are definitely going to live up to that billing of tackling the tough topics because we're going to be talking about climate change with an Australian veterinarian who is right in the middle of it. And more importantly, we're going to talk about our responsibilities as veterinary professionals towards animal welfare, climate change. When should we speak up? How should we be speaking up? I can't wait to get into all of this, but first, as always, I am one of your hosts, Dr. Ernie Ward. And I'm registered veterinary technician, Becky Mosser. And our guest today is, frankly, as far as I'm concerned, one of the most brilliant and leading voices in veterinary ethics out there. She is incredibly eloquent in her writing and her delivery. Um, and I have to say her accent can't be beat. Dr. Ann Fawcett is joining us from Sydney, Australia, which is bright and early in the morning down there. So thank you so much for being here with us bright and early in your day. It's a pleasure, Becky and Ernie. It's a real pleasure. Now, I just kind of want to introduce our guests a little bit to your background because you have um, a really extensive background. You have a DVM. Um, you have a philosophy degree. You are published in veterinary ethics. I mean, this is really, truly your passion point, right? Welfare, ethics, professionalism. Tell us kind of that journey for you. So it sounds like it was really planned and it wasn't. Uh, it was a, a weird career trajectory. I started university and I wanted to be a career philosopher and I thought it would be a great idea. I did an honours degree in philosophy and I went to the career centre afterwards. I was deciding what I was going to do next and they said, well, now you can be a bank teller. And I thought, well, it's not what I did philosophy <laughs> degree. Um, I guess there's not too many options. If you if you want to study philosophy, you can definitely teach it and or you can you, you can apply it to other things. But there wasn't really a, a, a clear career path that inspired me. So I spoke to another counsellor who said, well, what's the smallest unit of happiness in your life? And that was very easy to answer. It was animals. And she said, well, how do you build that up so that it's all of your life or more of your life? And I thought, well, I guess I could be a zoologist or a veterinarian or something like that. And um, I applied for veterinary science and, and, and got in as a graduate. Now, there's lots of people who were trying their whole lives. Um, I was just very fortunate that I made it into the course and I loved it. And I've been a practicing vet now for nearly 15 years uh, in veterinary general practice, but I've also undertaken a lot of study in animal welfare and ethics because it seems to me that that's a great application of philosophy. So it all kind of ties together, but it was definitely not the master plan. <laughs> wow. Well, I will tell you, listeners, uh, if you don't think a philosophy degree is difficult to obtain, oh. you didn't take enough philosophy in college because I can tell you, like you, Anne, I absolutely love the study. Kierkegaard is my favorite, uh, has impacted my life in so many ways. Uh, but regardless, you really, logic, reason, being able to express yourself in writing and in debate. I mean, Anne, come on, philosophy's got a lot going on. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the tools that philosophy have given me have been so valuable and they've really helped me in terms of discuss discussing professionalism and ethics and I guess making arguments and justifying my position. I, I don't want to undervalue it, but um, what I felt was a little bit circular was going to school, going to university, studying philosophy, teaching philosophy. What, right, you know, right. What do you do with it? Philosophy at the end of the day 
it's a tool, it's a means to an end. It, it's, it can be an end in itself, but for me, I, I really wanted to apply it to something else. Well, boy, have you ever. And so, of course, what we really want to talk about today and what the Viewfinder family really wants to hear about is what's going on in Australia. I mean, back when Brazil was having all of the horrible forest fires and still is, quite frankly, uh, going on in the Amazonia, uh, you know, we talked about that. And and then when this started happening, the brush fires in Australia, um, I really, you know, first and foremost, what's it like right now? I mean, what are you seeing? What are you experiencing? You know, how how bad is it? It's really bad. So I want to be very clear. I'm based in Sydney and Sydney City itself hasn't been directly affected in a Sydney. Now, that said, fires have been burning in Australia this season since September continuously. And so there have been some days in Sydney where the smoke uh, in the air has been so bad, the air quality has been so bad that I've actually been on the radio advising people to keep pets inside. The air quality is too bad for people to go outside. Uh, We've had quite a few days of that. The footage on television of the fires is like nothing any of us have ever seen before. So they talk about the, the, the word unprecedented is being thrown around a lot. The The scale of these fires is huge. They're jumping roads, they're jumping rivers. In terms of the um, mortality, what we know is that I believe, and, and I'm, I'm not absolutely on top of it, I believe today 25 people confirmed dead, uh, at least 1,700 human homes lost. The conservative estimates of uh, wildlife loss are um, $480 million. That comes from Professor Chris Dickman at the University of Sydney. That's conservative, and that does not include um, bats, frogs, or insects. It only includes mammals, reptiles, and birds. So that is so hard to get your head around. And for every animal that is killed, there are other animals that survive but are injured, or they won't have a habitat, or they won't have a food source, or both. And we're going to be seeing those animals for months and months. Um, you've probably seen on the news our koala populations have been decimated. And uh, on Kangaroo Island in particular, they're estimating 25,000 koalas killed, which is just, I can't comprehend it. Um, the, the frustrating thing has, has they've been so relentless. Our volunteer firefighters and our paid firefighters have been working on these fires for months without a break. And uh, our environment has been really, really destroyed. Right. And there's a couple of things I want to note, viewfinders. Number one, we are accustomed to these you know, wildfires in California every season, but they come and go in a few days. So the Santa Ana winds kick up and December, November time period, you know, you have these horrible stories on the news, but it's gone. Dr. Fawcett just said this has been going on nonstop for four months. So we're recording this in January. This started in September. And Anne, is there an end in sight? Not at the moment. Uh, Unfortunately, because Australia has gone through a very protracted drought, there is so much dry material to be burned. Um, As you say, we actually are used to bushfires, but they tend to happen in a mosaic fashion over a much more limited period of time. The scale of these, what we're calling megafires, is is unprecedented, as we say, and it's just causing wholesale destruction. There is no little oasis that animals can escape to. Um, and so the big question is how can we regenerate from this? And we're really only halfway through bushfire season, which goes until March. Wow. Okay. So a lot of people are also listening to this right now, and they're saying, well, you know, look, 
I'm really sorry, and I hate that this happens, and it makes me sick to hear this, right? But it's a natural cycle, right? I mean, these are wild animals. I mean, we can't be too upset. This is the, the, the circle of life, right? But, and this is so much more complicated. I mean, we have taken these animals out of habitat. We've replaced, you know, we have now species, invasive species in Australia that weren't there before. And now the balance is going to be even further upset on the other side of this dramatic change. I mean, talk to me about, you know, okay, this isn't just the circle of life, is it? No. And I guess that old natural argument, I mean, anyone who works in veterinary practice is familiar with the client that, you know, preferences natural things is good, but we know that, you know, cancer's natural, pain's natural. There's right, a lot of bad right. things that are natural as well. So I, I don't know that that sells me. Um, I, I guess the thing is, yeah, one of the current debates at the moment is they've found a few teenage boys, as, as inevitably is the case every single year, that have deliberately engaged in arson. Uh, so some of the fires were deliberately lit. That's not the issue. The amount of fuel is what keeps the fires going. And the amount of fuel is a product of the changing climate. Uh, we've had record high heat waves. We've had hot temperatures over a very long period of time. Our hot seasons are getting longer and longer. And, and that has created the perfect storm. Um, unfortunately, also, our government has been engaged in this prolonged, protracted climate change denial exercise because of its own conflicts of interest for a very long time. Um, and I guess the business as usual pro approach isn't working. It's just not working. Um, and my worry is that if we put our heads down and say, well, you know, this is bad luck and we'll just do first aid on the affected animals, we're not addressing the root problem, the things that we can address. And, and one of those is anthropogenic climate change. Right. And obviously, you know, viewfinders, you know where I stand on this. Uh, my new book, The Clean Pet Food Revolution, about a third of it talks about the human induced climate change and the contributions of, you know, animal agriculture and pet food production. I mean, look, this is a big issue. And I don't want to politicize it, but I think Anne just brought up a really good point. If we continue to treat this politically as business as usual, it's not working. So, Anne, what do you think the role of the veterinarian should be to try to either raise awareness or solve it? Yeah, it's a really good question. I don't think this is a vet's job to solve because it's a wicked, huge problem that involves all of humanity. This is a true one welfare issue because it compromises animal welfare, human well-being and our environment. We won't have a sustainable environment if this keeps going. Um, I always look to, I, I loved the British Veterinary Association's document, um, the animal welfare policy called Vets Speaking Up for Animal Welfare, because it talks about the role of the vet as operating on three tiers. And I, I would say this applies to veterinary technicians as well, right? So you imagine you've got a patient coming in and let's say um, the issue is obesity. So, you know, if you just deal with the patient and the client, you are only really doing half your job. What about um, thinking about the kinds of pet foods that are available, thinking about in general, how people are feeding their animals. Surely we need to do something at a higher level. When it comes to these bushfires, if we're just triaging and treating animals that have been burned and you know euthanizing affected animals, because many of them, the truth is, many of them are beyond, far beyond treatment. Um, that's one thing, but we haven't done our job. We need to work at the level of the patient and the client or the herd, as it were, uh, the community as well. How can we pull together as a community and prevent this from happening again? 
and our uh, professional organizations and, and government at the end of the day. If we know as scientists that climate change is real, that anthropogenic climate change is having significant impacts on humans, animals, and the environment, then we need to do something with that knowledge. We are veterinarians who are looking after animal welfare, so we need to look after the immediate issues, but also the root cause. You know, I think when I, like when I hear you talk about this, it, it just, first of all, my heart, my heart is sick. My heart is sick for Australia. My heart is sick for California. Every time it happens here, we know that, you know, our animals have less and less places to go and that we've you know, we've essentially put them in this situation um, at the end of the day. And, you know, like Dr. Ernie said, it's hard because when you make it political, it's like people want to put earmuffs on or they want to get on a pedestal and it becomes about politics instead of, like you just said, the root issue of the cause. And so how how can we get to the root issue of the cause? What's the solution? What's the actionable items here that we can, you know, really examine, really apply and really bring, you know, to the surface so that we can take politics out of it? Because I I just know that we are not going to be able to make believers out of people as fast as we need the change to occur. Yeah, it's a hard one because what do we mean by the word politics? I I totally hear you. Um, I was just to digress slightly. I was rereading George Orwell's book, Animal Farm, this week. And it so resonated with me. And there's this wonderful character, a strong old horse called Boxer, who does a whole lot of work for the farm. And he at times has doubts. He thinks maybe we're being misled by a despot here. But his response is just to put his head down and say, I'm just going to work harder. I'm just going to do my job better. And at the end of the day, Boxer can't save the farm. In fact, he's betrayed. Uh, He's sent off to the knackery, being told he's going to be sent off this wonderful retirement. And I feel like if we're not careful that that's happening to us. Um, So I do think we need to be politically engaged. Now, that doesn't mean joining a political party. But what it does mean is making a comment, um, signing petitions, uh, protesting, writing letters, going home at the end of the day and thinking what policies need to change to shift things on a greater scale. So for example, um, another big problem we have in Australia, as no doubt you guys do, is plastic pollution in the marine environment. It's huge. Um, They say that there's gonna be more plastic than fish in the ocean by 2050, which is Mm. (laughs) another unfathomable um, statistic. But um, what can we do? Well, as an individual, I can stop using single-use plastics, but it's not that easy. I can't control every um, vessel that my purchases are available in. And so I need government, I need organizations to change policy. Things have to happen at a broader level to affect meaningful change. It doesn't mean that my refusal to use single-use plastics is not making a difference. It is. And a lot of those small differences do add up. But we need our organizations and our political leaders to step up and, and, you know, create policy that results in meaningful change. Um, So back to, you know, concrete things that we can do, I guess um, a lot of what I do every day is write letters. I'm really engaged with my professional association, the Australian Veterinary Association. I'm on the New South Wales Executive Committee and and have able to make contributions there. And I also write letters. I wrote letter letter to our Sydney University Vice Chancellor yesterday He sent out an alert about the bushfires and said, what else can we do? And I wrote back and said, well, one of the most productive things I believe the university 
could do is to formally declare a climate emergency and recognize it because that helps us mobilize resources. Yeah, you know, it's, it's fascinating that you brought up uh, Orwell. In fact, uh, during my Christmas break, I reread uh, a collection of his essays. So yeah, his I, I think we're kind of in the same universe here, Anne. But regardless, I, I want to be clear on the boxer analogy because it is brilliant and it's so timely. Boxer, again, he was the, the cart horse, the, the hardest working animal on the farm. And he just believed that if he worked harder, that he would be taken care of. And of course, in the end, he was slaughtered. And I think that that's a great metaphor for all of humanity right now. If we just expect it to change and everyone's looking out for our best interest in the government, I'm afraid we're going to wind up just like boxers. So, you know, I, I, I love that you brought that up, but I also like the fact that you've made a case for activism. Now, we can all define activism on a different level. I mean, you know, I ran for political office unsuccessfully, trying to to get active and push these things forward. But, you know, what Dr. Fawcett is also saying is, look, get involved now. And that's where I say that's where politics matters, because you're right. We do not solve this by just saying, oh, I'll take paper, not plastic. We have to really get involved. Yeah, and I think we get wrapped up in that mentality of like, what difference does just little old me make? Right. Like what is if it's just me, but if all of the voices that were just me and and I don't want to sound passe, I don't want to sound cliche. Like, I I know that, like, it's like you hear that message, but I think it, it's it's like you have to continue to 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 yell that message loud and you have to say um, whatever it is you're passionate about. Please get involved and to, um, you know, support that passion because it, it truly is a strength in numbers. But there is each individual matters, right? I mean, it's a life or death situation at this point. Absolutely. And I mean, as our former prime minister said, climate change is the biggest existential threat facing humanity, but also the world of animals and our environment, our whole planet. In fact, there is really nothing more important. And it's it's something, you know, all of us humans and animals rely on the life-sustaining ecosystems in which we live. We put ourselves in buildings and aircon and we we try to forget about it. We protect ourselves from nature. But that's where our food comes from. That's where our medicines come from. If we don't have a world, we, we can't do our jobs and the things that we want to do that give our lives meaning. Well, and let's spin back to the animal welfare issues for veterinary professionals specifically. And I think that if you're listening today, viewfinders, we have to expand our sort of circle of consciousness and awareness, and I would say welfare, beyond the dogs and the cats and the hamsters and even the horses that we care for. Uh, and that extends to farmed animals, to wildlife. So, Anne, talk to us a little bit about the animal welfare responsibility that you believe, and I agree, that veterinary professionals have, especially when it comes to big issues like this? Well, I think it's really important that if we see a threat to animal welfare, we need to investigate it, we need to study it, and we need to communicate about it to our clients, to the community, to you know our, our political organizations, um, so that they're aware, so that they understand there's a threat coming, and we need to try where possible to present solutions. I think one area that we have made progress on, and I, I want to say this has been a very positive thing, and I would attribute it to Hurricane Katrina and the the dis- disaster and, and the response to that. I mean, I think, as you probably recall, with Hurricane Katrina, a lot of people weren't able to evacuate with their animals 
and a lot of people were separated from their companion animals and a lot of those animals died. Uh, and since Katrina, a lot of veterinarians, a lot of veterinary nurses, as we have here, um, have advocated for the importance of that human-animal bond. And as a result, it was really great to see at evacuation centres, people with their companion animals and, and where possible livestock actually evacuating in, into the centres. So there wasn't that separation. There wasn't that wholesale loss of companion animal life. Unfortunately, livestock didn't always fare so well because it was just impossible to evacuate the large numbers and volumes of those animals. And right now we've got vets um, out euthanizing livestock that were that were burned. Um, and also we've had to call the Australian Army in to dig mass graves for livestock um, that were caught in the fires. It's really, really terrible. Um, the way vets are helping at the moment is in that immediate post-fire response, um, triaging, euthanizing, uh, saving the animals they can. But because of the heat of these fires, there's not so many animals that can be saved. Okay, but let's circle back because here's where it gets tricky, especially from an ethical perspective or even philosophical or religious, depending on how you want to spin this. But a lot of people are listening today and they're going, okay, I get it. Like if this were dogs and Katrina cats that were you know, left behind, I get that. Like that makes a lot of sense. But Ernie, I, I stop when it's the koala bear. Well, they're cute and everything. Maybe we should say the koala bears, but I stop at the digit, you know, what, whatever kind of species it is, right? The, the reptiles, the lizards, the birds, right? So there is this inherent level of speciesism that I think clouds our ethics. So can you help maybe explain, you know, when you, because when you're saying animal welfare, what I am hearing clearly and what I've read from you is we're, you're talking about all animals, not just few species. So maybe help explain that to our listeners. Sure. So I guess one thing is that we um, are often thinking about the animals that are right in front of us. And that includes myself, uh, my veterinary biases. I, I deal with small animals a lot of the time. So I'm often thinking about dogs and cats. Um, but the welfare and survival of our native wildlife, most of which we don't see most of the time, is crucial. It, it's not just um, because they have intrinsic value, as in value in themselves, and, and I would argue that they absolutely do. But even from a brutally selfish perspective, uh, if we don't have ecosystems with biodiversity, they don't function. And they're actually part of that environment that sustains all of our lives. We don't have the native flora if we don't have certain mammals. Um, some of our mammals pollinate the plants. Um, we, we really need that biodiversity. Once we lose it, it's gone forever and we cannot get it back. Right. And again, you know, we are speaking about things that humans are directly contributing to, if not outright causing. Right. So, Anne, I mean, this is not something that we can just say, well, you know, I didn't have anything to do with that. I mean, already we know in California and in Australia, some of these fires were sparked intentionally by humans. So therefore, I think we have an ethical responsibility to, to try to help. But more importantly, if it's a climate change issue and we are in any way contributing or worsening, then don't we also have a responsibility, Anne? Yeah. And I'm hoping that the sheer enormity of these fires, the the suffering and the destruction, the images and footage that we're seeing in the news are moving people to change their behaviour. We need, for, for selfish reason, reasons, we, we all need to be more prepared for climate change events. But um, 
importantly, we really have been very poor stewards of our land. And I think this demonstrates it more powerfully than anything else. We've been poor stewards of animals, very poor stewards of our land. And that needs to change. Business as usual isn't working. It's cruel. It's causing suffering. It's causing suffering that no one would want to be individually held responsible for. And yet we shouldn't be turning away. We need to look at those images and think about how we change that. So Anne, today, again, you're speaking to veterinary colleagues, so veterinary technicians and vets just like us. Uh, What are some of the things that we can do here in North America or in the UK or in Europe where our listeners reside? What can they do to help Australia? You know, I mean, are there websites that you would steer us towards or organizations that you would promote? Yeah, so there have been a lot of online um, donation campaigns and there's been a lot of money raised. One of the groups in New South Wales that's raising money is called WIRES and it's a wildlife rescue group and I can send you the link for them. The RSPCA, which is our Royal Society for Prevention of Cruelty to Animals, is raising money, uh, sorry, raising money, um, as is the Rural Fire Service. But I would also urge veterinarians and technicians to think about, okay, those are those are funds that are going to help in the immediate and medium term. But I would think about donating to, say, the Climate Council or um, the Guardian newspaper, which has got a campaign to raise awareness about climate change, because ultimately that is the problem and it impacts the welfare of humans, animals and the environment. Um, You also raised a point earlier that I wanted to take up. You said I'm talking about activism and maybe I am, but I feel like um, advocacy also demands a strong response. It, it, It demands action. And in Australia, I'm not sure if it happens in the US, but the word activism, it's almost used pejoratively. It's almost like, oh, you're just an <laughs> activist. And Same here. I find that yeah. insulting. If you're really a scientist, and I mean a conservative scientist, and you are presented with evidence, then you should be not only your own behavior in light of that new evidence, but also convincing your colleagues. That's what a conservative scientist would do. So, so I feel like... Mm, Maybe it's activism, but maybe this is what is um, advocacy demands of us. Honestly, I think one of the most eloquent, you know, like I said in the beginning, just eloquent and beautiful way of saying it, because the truth of the matter is, is we are all staring at these images saying, what can I do? And and I guess sometimes it's like, well, are you asking what you can do or are you asking what you can comfortably do? Are you asking what you can easily do? Because um Blankets and mittens and money are are going to help, but how do we never get here again? And I think that that is where that advocacy, activism, politicism, whatever you want to call it, because I think it comes down to whatever level you take it, right? right like right. you probably determine what level that comes into um, and, and how you define it. But at the end of the day, some action has to be taken above. I feel like right now, we're in like a quote unquote thoughts and prayers type situation when we keep seeing these like, you know, chronically catastrophic things happening. We just are like band-aid, band-aid, band-aid. And, and it's too late. And like, I think that this conversation has to be had on the most important, highest, most serious level of it's it's we cannot forget when these fires go out what happened and why it happened and the real passion point can't be mittens and blankets. It has to be sustainable change. Oh, that's such a great point, Becky. I 
have to say that quite a number of uh, evacuation centres and rescue centres have now been saying no more blankets, no more mittens, we are overwhelmed and it's causing another problem which is sorting through all the staff. Yeah. Yeah, same. We have it in, uh, post the hurricane. Same thing. People send shoes and boxes of water and it's like, okay, that's like, we've got enough of that. We really now We have all money. the water, but women <laughs> don't have feminine products. Can we get some realistic help? It, it is, right. There is no organized response there. And, and the problem is... In, in, I guess, the biggest frustration I run into. And, and so, um, you know, Dr. Fawcett, uh, Dr. Ernie and I are both on the east coast of North Carolina where we are, are annually affected by these hurricanes. We're about 30 minutes away from each other. So, like, if he, he goes, I go. We both are having to evacuate or stay. <laughs> and we're evacuating more and more. We're leaving more and more. We're gone longer and longer because they're happening more and more and they're bigger. And it is always this retroactive response instead of, um, you know, piecing in between. All, all of these extreme weather events are devastating. They're going to increase in severity and frequency. And I think the most important thing we can do is fight our own apathy. Get up and do something about it. Find out what help is needed and give the help that's needed. Wow. I, I got to tell you, Dr. Ann Fawcett from Sydney, Australia, it has been a real pleasure and honor to spend some time with you today. I know our Viewfinder family really is going to benefit from this conversation. But what I really hope to impress upon all of you is whether you view yourself as an activist, an advocate, a political person, a person who just you know wants to make the world a little better, that you actually get up and you do something. Because social media you know, is great to click a like or give a thumbs up for something, but this is bigger than that. Like we're not going to solve climate change by doing a clever meme on Instagram. I mean, this is going to require the concerted efforts of all of the world's governments. We're going to have to change radically the way we do a lot of things, whether it's food production, whether it's transportation, whether it's clothing and goods. I mean, this is really going to require a lot of us. I think it's only going to be better. I think we're actually going to have better choices on the other side of this. That's why I wrote that book. <laughs> but regardless, and I want to thank you for, for all you're doing for all animals and for promoting animal welfare. It's just really been a, a, an honor today. Thank you. Thank you, Ernie and Becky. It's been so lovely chatting with you. Well, we'll include all of the links that uh, Dr. Ann Fawcett uh, suggests for us. Uh, again, if you are looking for some way to help by donating, again, I would encourage you to follow these links that we'll have in all of our show notes because uh, I trust Dr. Fawcett implicitly. Well, viewfinders, what do you think about this? What do you think about climate change and a veterinary professional's responsibility? How can we as veterinary professionals actually make a difference in the world? Hit us up on social media, reach out to us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. We really want to hear from you. That's right. You can find us on Facebook at Veterinary Viewfinder, on Instagram at Vet Viewfinder, and make sure you click to subscribe on your favorite podcast link so you don't miss one great episode of the Veterinary Viewfinder. Until next time. Bye. Bye. See you later. Well, I appreciate it. That was your best crocodile Dundee <laughs> impersonation. It was fabulous. <laughs> 